Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of Sad Times. My name is Kevin. I am your host. Now, for those of you who were asking, and I know none of you were, why am I named Kevin? Well, uh, where I went to, a, I went to a prestigious university in the southern part of Illinois. I'm not going to name it. And uh, in my English class, as a freshman, we did a paper called well, not called. It was write a paper about why you're named what you're named. Again, I said prestigious university. And uh, so I called my mom and I said, hey, mom, you know, we're, we're writing a paper and, you know, we just want to know, like, you know, why why my name Kevin? And, you know, was there a, there a story behind it? And she just said it sounded good with Kelly. And I said, great. Well, good talking to you, mom. I'll talk to you later. Uh, and so that was the whole of my paper. And my name is Kevin. Um, and uh, for those of you who have not listened to Sad Times before, just a little primer for you. Uh, here we bring on people who come on to, to tell parts of their story. I mean, when we say their story, I mean parts of their life that they want to share when they were sad, upset, angry, emotional in, in any number of ways, how they acted. Uh, how the people around them that they loved uh, and loved them acted. Uh, and the goal here is not to solve anything or fix anything. It's it's about letting people say, hey, this is my experience with X, Y, and Z, so that other people who are listening can hopefully feel less alone because they can say, oh, oh, wow, I thought I was the one who thought that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and before we go any further, a word from our sponsor, fuck. And that was the word from fuck cigarettes. So uh, that laugh you hear there, we're going to get him in here in just a second. Uh, he is a returning champion. He was the original guest of Sad Times way the fuck back when. Uh, and we're bringing him back on here to catch up with him. Uh, I will say this before we get started, just a disclaimer, you know, myself, Brent, uh, the guest, Chris, who we're going to talk to in a second. None of us, much like my sister, are doctors. None of us are doctors. So uh, we need to just put that out there. We're going to tell some kind of experiences with uh, medication. These are our own singular experiences. Um, and we're not trying to tell anybody what or how or uh, medication to do. So just want to get that out of the way. So with that being said, Chris, how are you, man? Hey, and um, would you like to know how I became named Chris? Fuck yeah, man. Did you uh, not have to write that paper, too? I did not have oh, to write okay. that paper. But I can tell you that my older brother, uh-huh. uh, when my mom was having him back in Harlan County, Kentucky, back in the late Ooh. 60s, yeah. um, she was going to name him Christopher Dale. And some of the really? nurses and the people at the hospital were making fun of it. What? <laughs> they were like, oh, CD, old CD. Really? And, yeah, they were making jokes about um, uh-huh. the name Christopher Dale. They found it funny for whatever reasons. And my mother kind of got kind of shy about it and weirded out. And so she named him Jeffrey Allen, which is his name. But then she said to herself, well, if I have another son, mm-hmm. I, well, by God, I'm going to name him Christopher Dale. And your brother, your older brother, <clears throat> went on to form a, a chain of furniture stores. Jeffrey Allen's. <laughs> no, right. uh, so I guess she was just embarrassed in the moment, but then yeah. how, you're what? A couple years younger than your brother, maybe? Almost four. Almost four. Okay. Um, so she was like, by then she's like, fuck it. Christopher Dale, CD it is. CD. Man, I got to start calling you that. <laughs> but yeah. So um, we'll do again for any of the real hardcore fans. Uh, you may have heard some of this stuff in the first episode, but We've known each other, we're coming up over 21 years now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've become extremely close friends, and uh, we met each other when we were both at that prestigious university. Now, you're a bit older than I am. Right. Uh, And why why was it that you were at the university a little later than when I was there for the, quote, normal time? Almost 10 years. Um, I graduated high school in 90, started going to the University of Illinois at that time in the fall of 90, Mm -hmm. and stayed there for a couple years, and... It was just mostly kind of funds, kind of money situation. And so I decided that, oh, GI Bill looks pretty good. Uh, so yeah. um, I joined the Air Force mm. and I spent six years in the Air Force. And then when I got out in 2000, um, I came back and started using that good old GI Bill to go to the prestigious university where we met. That is in the southern part of Illinois. Right. Right. I'm, I'm almost 10 years older than you. Yes, that's right. 
Um, and you, so we met at, at that university, but it was during your sophomore year and my sophomore year. Right. Yes. So yeah. And at Illinois, I had taken mostly of the, you know, the, the general ed classes. Mm -hmm. So when I got to the prestigious university, mm -hmm. it was mostly just, um, the concentration courses that I was taking. And what was your original major when you started there? At Illinois? Uh, uh, at the prestigious university. <laughs> I was originally, the whole time I was in the Air Force, I was thinking I was going to go to journalism school. Okay. And so I did that. And so I started out at where we met mm -hmm. uh, in the journalism school there and worked on the paper there. And um, the, it was in the same building as the as the theater department. Mm -hmm. yes, and the it was radio and TV home, and film yeah. and all that. Communications and, and, building. Correct. Yeah. And... Um, so I, I just kind of found myself kind of going more towards that end of the building and thinking about some other times in my life where I, I was looking at maybe auditioning I, just out of the blue. I didn't have any. How old were you when you first thought about that? <clears throat> when you say other times in your life? I remember distinctly one time there was, we were living at Fort Meade, Maryland. I was in the Air Force. I was attached to the NSA at that time. Mm -hmm. I was a Korean linguist. And... um what does that mean? Can you just tell us like a two sentence primer on what a Korean linguist does? Um, I would listen to target communications or intercept emails or fax. Um, when I was in Korea, I would listen to North Korean military comms. Wow. And provide translation or just kind of monitor mm -hmm. what they were doing. And then at the NSA, my target was mostly just translating documents. Okay. So you were uh, fluent in the Korean language? At that time. Yes. Uh, you know, you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. And so mm -hmm. my, my Korean language skills aren't what they once were. But And then what was your, uh, did you have a major at the U of I? Sociology. Socio okay, so we've got sociology, we've got journalism, yeah. and now we're kind of hinting at a maybe a foray into theater. Yeah. yeah. So I, so in my experience, I went to college because that's what you did. It's like, okay, you're done with high school, you go to college, right? Right. And I had one major, it was film. And then, like you, similarly, I, I auditioned for the theater department. I got in, blah, blah, blah. I briefly, for like one week, was a film and theater double major, and I about died. So my question for you is, has that always been kind of the case for you where you're like you have an interest in a number of different things, and maybe you kind of jump from interest to interest? Is that is that similar to – is that similar other places in your life, I guess I should Absolutely, say? Absolutely, yeah. I think – well, I started out, you know, a very small town, rural, kind of Southern Illinois mm -hmm. town. Um, it was very one to years he type kind of going on at that time. The coal mines were still going on, so there was some 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 economic stuff happening. There was a there was a downtown that was active, and there's a middle class. Yeah, there was a it was a small small rural town, so it was, it was you know simple simple upbringing kind of thing. But the schools, you know, were pretty basic. This is in the mid and late seventies. And there weren't a lot of, quote, gifted programs, mm -hmm. but I had already, you know, I could read already, you know, just messing with my, you know, my brother was in school and I was always kind of. Hey, Wait, how old, how old were you when you could read? Before kindergarten. Jesus. I, I, you know, I didn't really understand all that I was reading, but I could understand the sounds of letters and put them together as words and read. Just from kind of looking over your brother's shoulder? And asking him stuff. And then, you know, letter people. And then, like, the shows that were on PBS. Uh -huh. But um, so I was able to do a lot academically from, from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything was very easy it came very i seem to learn things very easily they come to me very quickly and without much effort and so that would kind of lead to um oh this is very interesting and then just kind of dive in on it and then interest be kind of taken in another direction and that's always kind of the way it was and then so i i ended up going to um a residential high school that was for gifted students. Residential high school. Like you moved we lived away from at home? school, yeah. You lived at school. Okay. Yeah. It was How a far place, away from home were you? It was in Aurora. Aurora, Illinois? Illinois? And I'm was from Wayne Harrisburg, there? Illinois. <laughs> no. 
But um, it's called, well, I can say it, I guess. It's Illinois Math and Science Academy. Yes. And when people I know who, this is not me trying to be funny, the rest of the show is, but this is me. People, I know so many people and they're like, well, I went to IMSA and I'm like, okay, you're brilliant. You know, uh, or, or I hear them like I had a cousin who went to IMSA, that type of thing. Right. I have a question about what you were saying, though, about you, you get interest in something. Do you have the experience that if you're like really interested in, let's just say baseball, you and I love baseball. Right. And I'm not, I know that has not waned for you, nor is it for me. But when you first got into it, it was like, well, this is what I'm going to be interested in. And this is what I'm going to care about. I'm going to learn everything I can about this. And I'm going to acquire, quote, the materials. Is it that? And does it kind of get you every time like this is going to be the thing? And then it kind of wanes off or do you kind of expect it to wane off? I think at this point, you know, I'm I'm 50, mm-hmm. and so for a long time, I can kind of it's I'll see it as something that yes, I'm interested in now. I understand that I'm interested in this, but I'm not seeing it as something that's going to go forward as some kind of like sometimes people I think would they would discover a love of woodworking mm-hmm. and then push that into a career path or mm-hmm. a, a life's work. Mm-hmm. Or the first time that they used pencil and paper to draw something and they're like, oh my God, this is really making me on. And so that becomes their life's work. Um, I've, I didn't really have that. I would find things interesting. Mm-hmm. I would pursue it for a certain amount of time. And then not so much. Would you kind of beat yourself up when you started to look at other things? No, because that's good. I think, well, I think that goes to the the manic kind of situation where if I, you know, would much later, later, later be told that I had bipolar two disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time that made sense to me because that kind of gave an explanation as to why I was constantly starting things and then not finishing them, not just areas of interest, but also like I didn't graduate from IMSA. I didn't graduate from the University of Illinois. Um, it wasn't until I joined the military and got through basic training and I'm like, oh, I, I finished this thing. I'm going to, I can do this. That'd be just, an amazing feeling. Yeah. And I can just Especially continue Especially something on. that difficult. And then went through that, that whole term of enlistment. And I was, I was always going to get out. Uh, was, um, the military wasn't uh, a career path for me. It was a way of, you know, being able but to you do signed up for six there. years. Six you, years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of the linguist thing. Right. If I signed up for six years because of that, the needs of the Air Force, they needed linguists. Mm-hmm. So I was able to, you know, get some extra rank right out of basic. I got a little bonus. I got I, foreign language pay. I have a good friend from childhood who was a Mandarin linguist. Oh, nice. So uh, you, so you come out of there. Now, as a kid, were you anxious? I didn't know it at the time, mm-hmm. I guess. I just... I was kind of like a one of those, what are they called? Katamari balls. You ever see the game where there's like a ball that just kind of travels down a mountain and it just like things attached to it. And uh-huh. so by the time it's down at the end, uh-huh. it, it just has all manner of like cars and people and animals. And oh, everything. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I have it attached to it as it's rolling around. And I felt a little bit like that. Like I was just hurtling through space and, and life and just whatever kind of came on at the moment. And I was like, oh, this is heat. And it didn't overwhelm you. No, because, you know, again, we were kind of in a shelter, I'd say sheltered, you know, I mean, coming home at dusk when parents, you know, didn't really, it wasn't like today where there's like a monitoring of kids, Mm -hmm. you know, we, in summertime, especially, you know, as soon as before noon, you'd be like, okay, well, I'm leaving. Yeah. We'll be home by dark Mm -hmm. and just do whatever. And it was relatively safe in our little town. And so we would just go. And so nothing really to be afraid of. No, not really. You could even imagine. No, and nothing in school would cause me to be anxious because I could do everything pretty well. Did you have racing thoughts of any kind? Or did somebody who is as intelligent as you, did you like overthink stuff, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't, I don't know because I, I, know I came from some, some, I don't know what to say, but humble beginnings. I mm-hmm. mean, we didn't have a lot. Yeah. And so, but I, you know, because I was interested in a lot of different things, I found myself, you know, 
I had early growth spurts, so I was interested in basketball and other sports. And so I found myself with the sports guys and I was good at all the academic stuff. So I was kind of in the nerdy clique, mm -hmm. if you want to call it that. Um, I was kind of out, that was part of, I guess, any kind of way of dealing with any kind of anxiety or manic thing would be very outgoing, very gregarious and very you kind of extroverted. Mm -hmm. One, you're a tall motherfucker. I just want to point that out. Two, you still to this day, you, you know, you come into a room and people are like, who's that guy? And, you know, you kind of draw people to you. You, you, you have a magnetic sense of you. You And when I met you, it was like a, um, you know, and then started inviting you to parties. You were just kind of hold court, that type of thing. So you're saying basically as a kid, it was like, oh, hey, man, hey, man, how are you doing? Hey, right. hey. That kind of, if you remember back in our, in some of those theater classes that people would be like, you paid money to do that? Mm -hmm. Like where you talk about energy and mm -hmm. and chest and open eyes and open chest and, mm -hmm. I do and how you send out your energy. Your chi. Yeah. And so I, I kind of, now I would look back and kind of think that I was probably always kind of just very outward, kind of always just kind of an open energy type person. So I was with the popular kids. I was, you know, I knew, well, it was a small school, so it was, you know, mm -hmm. but I just found myself traveling easily amongst the groups instead of being sequestered in one so you weren't in one click, right? You you kind of moved between them, and then you okay. So you went to the military, jumping back up ahead a little bit here, and you then got out of the military. We met at that prestigious university. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you do after you graduated? You did graduate from that prestigious university. Uh, I, I do know that because you sat next to me at graduation. <laughs> I did. Yes. Um, my wife was able to. Um, get a teaching position here in Chicago. The idea was to move to Chicago so I could pursue um, the, the lucrative, lucrative, <laughs> is right. lucrative and, um, world of, of live theater. You and I are both wearing gold-plated headphones. <laughs> That's just from our theater money. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. And, um, and, and that happened at first. Uh, you know, well, actually, at first, in the first year, I was in maybe two shows. And I was Mary Wives was Mary Wives one of those? Mary Wives of Windsor, yeah. Dracula or something? No, it was Mary Wives of Windsor was the first one. And then oh I can't remember actually because it's it's been a bit. But um just to say that uh I wrote to one of my old professors and lamented that I'd only you know, I've been here a year and I've only been in two shows. And what did they say? And his response was You've only been there a year, and you've already been in two shows? Yeah, so, that's a pretty good response. So, so I was like, oh, well, maybe that's that's how it is. Okay. Time. Pause. Sorry. I can't hear anything. So, yeah, two shows in one year. Um, yeah, and then so, you know, that put me in a different mindset. I was like, oh, okay, that's how it is. And then um, I just kept auditioning and would be doing these small storefront shows with people and getting to know people and starting to be kind of more involved in the, the theater community. What was the name of the, the ball you said again, where you're rolling downhill? What is that? Katamari. Yeah. So you were a Katamari bar, bar, ball now in the Chicago theater community. Yeah. So just you're just kind of collecting friendships, collecting. Just doing one thing after the next. Mm -hmm. And then that's probably a part of the problem too, because I didn't really have any set destination. There wasn't a long-term place that I had my eye on that I was trying to get to. I was just, whatever's in front of me now, I want to do the next thing and the next thing. And at the time, I had a belief that if I did the next thing and the next thing, then at some point, a door would open or some opportunity would present itself and I would be ready for it. So uh, I'm going to, this is, this is a section of the show I like to call the funny question. And it goes like this. Were you able to make your living on theater <laughs> not at all it, okay. cost, it cost me money every time i did a show and yeah. i would expand on that just very briefly um well why it cost you money well because most of the time there was no pay mm -hmm. and so i would either have to take cta trains which cost money mm -hmm. or drive my car which cost money Maybe and parking and gasoline and right stuff like that or at the time i had a little second 
job. Um, I was huh. doing I was doing temp work through a temp agency during the days, and then I also had a little restaurant job where I was kind of delivering uh, delivering pizzas. Yeah, uh, when I first moved here, and um, I would have to give up some of those night shifts to to go to rehearse to, to rehearse something where I was making no money. Right. So. Thank you, everybody. That has been the funny question section of Sad Times, brought to you by <laughs> Fuck Cigarettes. So you're in Chicago. You've done two shows. You find out, oh, actually, in the first year, you find out, actually, that's pretty darn good, especially in a, a city of this size with a theater community this large. And you continue to do theater for a while, a good long while, actually. And then, um, gosh, you moved here in 2004, right? Yes, 2004. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... How long would you say you were doing theater somewhat regularly? Oh, about a good decade or more. Decade or more? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it started kind of not, you know, the opportunities weren't quite as much going into probably 2015, 2016. Around that time, were you feeling, and I'm not trying to uh, correlate this, maybe I am, uh, were you feeling more stress in your life or... I started to feel like maybe there was some kind of window that was closing and that was driving some anxiety because, you know, I had went to these other places, you know, IMSA and whatnot. And some of those people that I had known from there that I still know uh, through Facebook or whatever, mm-hmm. um, they're all, you know, very successful people by and large. And, um, you know, I... Would always, as people do, you know, you compare yourself, and I always just felt okay in the sense that, well, I'm I'm an artist and I'm I'm following this other path, and it's a high risk, high reward situation. And if the thing happens, then it's going to be really great. But if it doesn't, then okay, I'll do something else. At that time, how were you defining success? Do you think? Because you said that the the people you went to school with they've they've done some crazy ass things, like really cool stuff, right? So were you measuring yourself against them or did you have a, a different barometer that you were going off of, of what you would then say, I am now successful in my own eyes? Usually in my life, and I, I don't know if this is for everybody, but I would compare myself to those in my, or my contemporaries, my people in my immediate sphere, you know, mm-hmm. like I was a linguist but I was a Korean linguist, and that had a little more cachet because it's a much more difficult. It's like level five, right? The was, highest yeah, level? what the government calls a level five, like mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, one to five categories in terms of difficulty for an English speaker to learn. Mm-hmm. Korean and Arabic were the hardest. They had the longest courses at Defense Language Institute where we studied. And, you know, the Korean linguists were like the top 3% of the enlisted kind of core. Okay. Just automatically because it was there were so few. And then I went to like the Worldwide Language Olympics at DLI while I was in uh, Maryland. You, you went to the Worldwide Language Olympics? Really? Well, it was a military thing, but yeah, it was military people from all over the world coming Discus? back to. No. Oh. We, like I played Jeopardy in Korean for one of the things. Really? Yeah. Sorry, and actually Michael yelling. Jordan was one of the answers. I love Michael. You mean, oh, I know what it was. Uh, the answer was the greatest professional athlete to ever live. And you're like, bing, who is Michael Jordan? <laughs> right. Because exactly everybody right. knows that. Exactly. Right. So when but, you, when so, you so there would be these things where like, well, I'm a linguist, but I'm at the top. And then I, yeah, IMSA, IMSA was, you're already considered, like everybody that's going to school there is considered to be in the top, whatever percentage of high schoolers. Do you feel that you ever felt <clears throat> the same version of that in the theater community? I felt like, especially like in, there was some, around the 2010 and, and uh, a few years after that, where I would meet some people or meet or be cast in a show where some of the people in the show knew me by mm-hmm. reputation and not just, I'd never met them, but they knew who I was. Okay. And that made me feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. And... I did feel like I still, I, I never in my life until, well, and we'll get to that certainly, but up until about a year or two ago, um, I never had a problem with self-worth or confidence or how I felt about myself. I mean, I think a lot of artists will always go back and forth like we are and are the shit, you know, we are shit, but we are this shit. At the same time. We used know? to say that to each other at Denny's <laughs> yeah, right. long, long, long right. ago. And then we shit 
Because we were at Denny's. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, but in general, I always had a certain idea about who I was and how I felt about myself. Well, don't get so goddamn far ahead of me. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, so you're 2015, 2016. I want to go back to this idea of the window closing yeah. because I think that's something that everyone can relate to. I certainly can relate to it. Um, oh, I almost made a bad joke. Okay, so uh, you said that caused anxiety. Did you think that there was some sort of clock that was ticking saying, if I don't get X by this age, maybe, or I'm not, I haven't reached X goal by this age, then that, as you said earlier, that door that's going to open is going to close. Is that kind of what you were going through or am I saying that wrong? Well, yeah. Um, no, that's right. And that I felt like time was running out for me and that the longer I stayed at my, because by that time I was had been tipping at this accounting firm mm -hmm. and then got on as a permanent employee. And then suddenly what I had always considered my day job, and I still referred to it as my day job for years, is going to be suddenly just my job. That's I'm no longer this person. I'm a tax processor at an accounting firm. And um, that caused me a good bit of anxiety as well. Yeah, I was going to say this is it's time for the Dr. Phil question of the day brought to you by Fuck Cigarettes. But um, how did that make you feel? And you answered me. It made you anxious. <laughs> yeah. Because you're like, no, correct me if I'm wrong and I'm saying this. Were you kind of thinking, well, this job is here just because I can't make the money right now in theater. But I will get to that open door. I will walk through that door. I will then be at the point where I can make money doing what I studied, what I love to do. And then this, quote, day job will no longer be needed. Right. Is that is that fair? Yeah. And then even during the day job time, there were points and perhaps opportunities that because of, you know, upbringing and work ethic and got to have a job and mm -hmm. got to make money. Mm -hmm. There were some things that were a play or a, maybe an independent film or something that I could have done, but it took place during the day. And so at the time I was like, well, I can't, I can't quit my, I can't quit my job. I got to, but you know, my wife was making decent money, so we could have probably gotten by while I pursued these opportunities, but I didn't. And I, I kept my job instead and just kept doing non-union storefront theater at night. And so over time that became a source of anxiety. Like, why didn't I do that? What so you're made... revisiting those decisions. Right, I'm starting to revisit a lot of decisions. You say work ethic because, yes, you're one of the hardest working people. I know you come from a family of extremely hardworking people. Um, did you – it just was like, well, you don't walk away from a good job. Is that kind of what you're saying? Right, or the security of it. You know, like mm -hmm. even big theater companies, big – you know, the Steppenwolfs and the Goodmans and mm -hmm. the Chicago Shakes of the world. My day job was paying more per week than – what those things would pay. And then after the production's over, well, you're out of work until you find another one. And so this steady paycheck every two weeks, I felt like I. Risk I reward. Right. I didn't, I didn't film and lose it. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't drive off the cliff. Ah, nice. Into the reference. I That's didn't, good. I didn't take the. Yeah. Leap. They definitely. Oh, spoiler alert. So you're starting to question these decisions, et cetera. Now, around this time, you and I, we were still talking most days. And uh, you mentioned Steppenwolf. Now, that's a theater company. Now, there's the band Steppenwolf right. that has a song that says, God Damn the Pusher Man, uh -huh. which is a great song. And, and uh, around this time, I kept saying, well, you see more. Well, let me do my impression of me. Well, you see more. No, that's Dr. Jason. I was just like, you seem more anxious. You know what? I've been on medication for a long fucking time. You should try it. And you're like, well, I don't know about that. And I, and I kept kind of pushing you towards it. Not like forcing you, but saying this might help. Right. And so when did you start taking Zoloft? Let's see. It was well before the pandemic. So maybe 2018. Were you a happy little egg? I'm sorry? 
You remember those Zoloft commercials from forever ago? It's just like a, a crudely drawn egg who's just really happy. <laughs> Every day that. when I would take Zoloft and, and just feel myself becoming more and more of a zombie, I was like, well, at least I'm an egg. <laughs> no, and I, and I resisted um, taking any sort of medications. You did. Mm -hmm. Because I, I was like, well, what if it takes away my artistic sensibilities? You know, like what if it, what if it, whatever I have going on inside me that makes me this person is changed inexorably. I, uh, I inexorably, hear but. that. And I think a lot of people listening to this will hear that 1000%. I, you know, I've been on and off medication, but mainly on medication since June 23rd of 2000. And I, for a long time was on such a low dose that it really wasn't doing much of anything. Right. Because I was so afraid that I, well, this part that makes me crazy is also the part that does the the stuff, you know. Um, so I I totally hear you on that. But you, so you, you did you go to a psychiat uh, psychologist, psychiatrist, or did you go? How did you get prescribed? Well, I just went to my primary care physician mm -hmm. and described what I was feeling, mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure whether she because we're on an HMO, you know. So if I was going to go to a psychiatrist, I'd still have to go to my primary care first mm -hmm. and get a referral. So I went to my primary care physician, and she just she was a she's my primary care physician, but she wasn't an MD. She was a PhD with like a practitioner kind of thing. She was legally allowed to be my doctor and prescribe me medicines, mm -hmm. but. She wasn't an MD. All joking aside, my sister is not a doctor. But also, all joking aside, a lot of great providers are also nurse practitioners. They no, they, sure, yeah, so, sure. I'm just saying, for my for my my primary care physician was was not a not like a family doctor. No, like an MD, right? Yeah, had a little black bag and. <laughs> well, I don't know, yeah. but um. So yeah, so I I I described how I'd been feeling and okay. And at that time I was, do you recall what you said no. or the idea of how you were feeling? Can you describe that? I'd been drinking a lot and, and I had for years kind of, and I just thought, well, I'm just a kind of a, I'm a drinker. I like it. Mm -hmm. But as the time goes on, you know, you kind of see how you're using it for certain things and not just to have a good time, but right. to also self-medicate maybe. Correct. Yeah, I think so. I think there was some of that. Mm -hmm. And so I was getting up to, you know, three times, you know, it was just on the weekends, but then more and more. And, um, and so I told her that, you know, I was kind of worried, not worried, but I've been drinking a lot more and I, I'd kind of, there's a great part in cat on hot and rough where brick, you know, why do you drink? Why do you drink? And he talks about, he drinks until he hears this click in his head and it turns the hot light off and the cool light on and everything's peaceful. And I guess that's anxiety. I guess I was trying to get rid of by doing that. But, um, so when I went to the doctor and said, this is, you know, how I'm feeling, she's like, well, we'll start you off on this amount of Zoloft. Mm -hmm. Do you remember and how much it was? Was it 25 or something? Like yeah, that? I think so. It was the yeah. low, mm -hmm. low dose. And then time would go on and I didn't really feel any different. So I just upped the dose mm -hmm. and time would go on and didn't feel much different. Up the dose. You still weren't feeling changes? Not really. I mean, there were changes in ways that I wasn't the biggest fan of. Um, in terms of like, you know, just very basic things like libido mm -hmm. was kind of crushed by it. And, um, Where, did you, you know, I made a joke earlier about when I was a happy little egg, cause I took Zoloft about 20 years ago. It just didn't work for me. And one of the main things was it made me feel like I felt nothing. Mm -hmm. Like I was a zombie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like overcorrection in a sense. So you, did you kind of feel that way too or no? Once the dosages would just kept getting raised and getting raised until I was at the max that you mm -hmm. can take. Um, once I started getting to those higher dosages, it did start 
to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Like, was it worth the relief or no? In your estimation, meaning the relief, it sounds like because when I became a zombie, there was relief in a sense from some of the racing thoughts, some of the stress that caused by that. But it was like the, 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 the cost benefit, it, it was too much of a payoff. I was not myself anymore. Right. So did you ever feel though, like, oh, well, you know, I feel less of X and that makes my life better? Or is it like, this isn't worth it? It made me feel some of the anxiety less mm -hmm. and some of the the stuff in your mind just tortures your mind less. But I wasn't feeling as if the trade-off I was instantly rationalizing, you know, like I was the kind of a zombie and I would just go to work and then come home and sit in my comfy chair and watch television until I go to bed. I'm here to tell you it is a comfy chair. Right. And then just go to work the next day. Just a very, what I would, you know, normal or average or pro <laughs> proletariat. I don't know what to say, but not the artist type life that I had been living or that I thought of myself. Yeah. I was just kind of a, and uh, and then, but there was some comfort in that too. Like I, I felt like I didn't have to do it. Like before, I felt like there was some pressure that if I don't, because kind of growing up, you know, because I had, had some successes in so, in certain areas, right? People are like, oh, you're gonna do great things. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna fly high. You know, you know, you're gonna make it. And all of a sudden, I'm like, well, now I have to make it. And if I don't, then total failure and what is it all worth? Total failure. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. Just the idea of total failure, nothing else. No, I mean, but seriously, like where you're like, well, if I don't do this, then fuck it all. I fucked everything up. Right, right. Was, How do we get there? I don't know. Like if I don't, if I don't have a, you know, if I'm not the star of a TV show, then mm -hmm. my life is worthless. Which is, you know, or in a movie or, you know, uh, famous director, whatever it is. If I didn't become some kind of successful person in that field, then what was it all for? But, right. but, the, but the heavy duty Zoloft was kind of taking a little bit of that away. And I was finding myself more kind of settling into this. And you were accepting of it. At the time, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I do want to interject here. Well, Zoloft didn't work for me, and it sounds like it didn't work the best for you um, overall. Yeah, I know multiple people who are on Zoloft that it does great stuff for. And it kind of is the mantra of, like, if you think you need medication and the first one doesn't work, that doesn't mean you, you know, you could try other ones. Right. So it's it's not like we're not piling on Zoloft. The only thing we pile on on this show is Brent. Because <laughs> we can't stand him. But right. other than that, so... How long were you, so you're on the highest dose of, of Zoloft. How long were you on that before you thought to yourself, or did you think to yourself, I need to move on from something or what happened? What changed? Um, after about six months of being on the highest dosage mm -hmm. and not getting the kind of results that I thought I should be getting, mm -hmm. I went back to my doctor and told her that, and I guess she felt like I needed something stronger because my interactions with her were, I don't know, I would get frustrated. And sometimes when I get frustrated, my I get a little loud or, and I don't hide my emotions very well, like in my face or anything. So right. she, she would be taking this as me like yelling at her or in a very angry rage filled way, kind of not attacking her, but kind of. And so she would try to talk to me about some other things. And then she left the room and came back in with like this sheet of paper and started asking me some questions. Just one sheet of paper. Yeah, just one sheet. Mm -hmm. And started asking me some questions. And I answered them. And then she's like, aha, well, perhaps we need to try this other medication. Meaning, well, hold on, like stopping Zoloft totally? Getting off Zoloft and getting on something else. Okay. And um, a quick question around this time when you were about to make this change, were you still drinking a lot or no? Not as much. The, that was the Zoloft kind of made it to where I wasn't drinking quite as much, but I was still drinking. Okay. So, but then 
I got on this other one, and she put me on. What was it? It was called Vraylar. Vraylar. And I didn't know much about it, but as soon as she put me on it, I kind of started being Dr. Internet, you know? And yeah. Started <laughs> reading about it. And started reading about it and uh -huh. trying to find out more. And What did you find out about it? At least from well, your research. What little bit I was looking at started to be confusing right off the bat because everything I was reading was saying that it was for bipolar one. And she had told me that I had bipolar two. So then I had to go and start reading the, what's the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two. Mm -hmm. And um, bipolar two, I guess if you could say more mild, I mean like the manic periods might not be, or the manic and the depressive periods might not be as severe, but they may last longer. In two or one? In two. In two, okay. Um, but obviously there was some difference because they were labeled yeah. as such, mm -hmm. you know, bipolar one, bipolar two. And in fact, uh, there, now there's ads I see all the time for uh, for new medicines that tout the idea that they're for both bipolar one and bipolar two. And when you see those ads, are people like dancing in a cornfield yeah, while right. they're like saying this may cause death or loss of toes <laughs> right, or right. whatever the fuck? Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, she put me on the Braylar and it was a, a the lowest dose is 15 milligrams. And how long did it take for you to start feeling the effects of it? I guess a few weeks. Yeah. But after a few weeks, strange things would be happening. Like I didn't want to drink at all ever. No drinking, no what? smoking weed, no nothing. It, it, and I, I just want to say this out here. The first time I heard Chris say, well, I didn't even think about drinking. I was like, what? And again, I'm not trying to mock you. I'm saying like, crit, you were always like, let's go have a beer. Mm -hmm. um, let's let's have a six pack and, and watch fucking uh, Fox News and get mad. Um, all, you know, that's how we hung out. And yeah, like, one of the first nights we hung out, I drank, a, I think, a 12 pack and a, and a pint. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. <laughs> and uh, yes, you did. <laughs> but so you so, were a drinker. Right. Big drinker. Sure. And all of a sudden, you're like, I don't think I want to drink anymore. Yeah, didn't even cross my mind. And then I thought that was weird. So I started, you know, sleuthing about that. And there was some anecdotal evidence where people that were taking this kind of drug were, they were using it for people that were um, addicts or having substance abuse problems. Oh. And it was, it was helping them a lot because whatever it was doing in their brain. So at the 15 milligram level, the no drinking thing I saw at the time as a good thing. A, a, sure. A benefit, a bonus. And some of the anxiety or the racing thoughts would cease, um, which also made me very happy. But one of the other things was it kind of locked me in my own mind. And not in a racing thoughts kind of way, but just... I had always been a very talkative person, easy to chat. Mm -hmm. You know, one of those old men that sit in the fountain at the mall and just whoever sits next to him just start talking. Did you say sit at the fountain in the mall? <laughs> yeah, these are the olden times. Okay, then. Well, these are in weird. older days when they had these giant buildings that you'd go in and there'd be various they stores with inside. Malls? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. There was And place. they had fountains? Okay. Like so in you, the center courtyard area. You were that guy that always got dragged away by the police at the fountain. Sure. Okay. No, I'm sure. just kidding. But you no, but that's exactly right, Margaret. You you always were the most gregarious, as you said earlier in the, the program. Uh the most gregarious, the most outgoing, the hey, how are you? And like you would listen to people and people are like, oh, he's listening to me, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so yeah. you felt like that was just evaporating. Right. And and everybody noticed it. My wife, everybody in my family, <laughs> other people that were close to me. Um, I would just come home and not say anything all night. Nothing. Other than like, could you pass me that? Or right. Or she'd ask me if I wanted something and I'd say no. Or When you were not saying anything. Can I ask you, do you, do you, were you cognizant that you weren't saying anything? Meaning, well, I yeah. haven't said anything for a while. And did that make you more anxious? Yes. And then you then started to double back on yourself perhaps and think, why am I not saying anything? And then 
did that kind of start up the racing thoughts? A little bit. Um, but it was when after a few weeks and things were kind of going in a good way and I had a follow-up appointment and she's like, how's it going? I was like, well, I'm not really drinking and I'm, 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 I'm you know, not as, uh, anxiety ridden uh, as I was, but at the same time, I'm a little zombied mm -hmm. and she's like, well, it seems like perhaps you need to go up to the next dosage level. So she doubled the dosage, went from 15 to 30. Okay. And a few weeks into that is when things really started going far south. What does that mean? I would, I was having trouble. I always felt slightly not completely sober. Like I would, I felt like I was always something. My mind was always in a state where I just didn't feel normal. Like it just didn't, my, my thoughts were clouded. I didn't really say anything, not because I just didn't have anything to say, but because I was worried that if I did say things that it would, that I would just break down and start bawling. And just, just by, just by speaking, it, it made you, well, that, afraid that you would my, become emotional. Right. And, and the, the worst part, the very worst part was all day, every day and at night and laying in the bed, trying to go to sleep, just a churn, just a constant churning obsession with every decision I had ever made, every path I had ever taken. And I was absolutely convinced that I had taken the wrong decision at every opportunity. Like every decision I'd ever made was wrong. I am now in this position where I'm, it's all over for me. I like, I can't hardly even do the job that I have, which isn't even that great of a job. Um, I, I was just, I couldn't do anything. And I would start seeking out any opportunities to find something that would take my focus away from that. So you, you became not became, excuse me, began obsessing. You alluded to it earlier. Well, sometimes you would think about decisions in the past and say, oh, I, I went the wrong way there. But this became all-consuming. Yeah. And so it was just kind of a loop, loop, in a sense. Yeah. What like, would you... Go ahead. Sorry. No, just certain points, you know, where when I was in the military, you know, when I was at the NSA as, a, as an Air Force, uh, I was a senior airman at the time. But I was getting ready to get my discharge, and they had offered me a, a civilian position. Mm -hmm. which had I taken it, I certainly would be in a much different position than I am now. Mm -hmm. And so that's like one thing I'm like, Oh, why didn't I do that? Or why didn't I stay in? Would this go over days? All day. Yeah. Weeks. What, what I mean by that is like you, maybe on a Saturday you started to think about, I didn't take that position. Would you still be thinking about that the following Wednesday type of thing? Yeah. Because there was a list of decisions, a list of things that I had done wrong in my mind. And I would just play, I would just, that list would just be the same list every day. Would you ever get any relief? No, never. Even if you say, forgot about, I, I turned down that civilian job and then thought about journalism. Was there not a relief saying, well, whew, that civilian job, that makes sense. But this journalism, this is the problem. But, or were they just were all awful? Everything was awful. Okay. Every, every decision uh, I would have, I would think that had I done the other thing, mm -hmm my life would be better. Yeah. Than well, it currently is. everything was awful. So you've passed the audition. You can be on sad times, <laughs> but, but there um, was no relief. The reason I asked that just to give you a little, when I used to obsess over things as a kid, I obsessed about, I was going to die in the electric chair and I would obsess over it and obsess over it and obsess over it. And then I would obsess over being kidnapped. And I would think about the electric chair thing and be like, well, that was dumb. At least I'm not worried about that. I uh, mean, that's that's why I was saying that. No, these were so there's no all, relief. There's there was no relief until I would find certain types of things to watch. Like what? Like 
Bulls basketball games, like a bat or any basketball game, but sports events would mm-hmm. be something that would kind of in the moment take my focus and allow me to just focus on that and just watch that and not be thinking about all the horrible decisions I've ever made. But you, and you're still not though being your talkative gregarious self. No, never. Mm-hmm. Silent, zombie, mm-hmm. just silent and just not just very meek. I felt very small, like chief in Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. I felt very small and there was no juicy fruit. Damn it. You beat me to it. <laughs> and, um, and so I would just go through my days and just try to get through the day at work and just anything anybody asked me to do. Yes. Oh, yes. But outwardly people weren't really understanding what was going on, but they didn't know that inside was just this roiling, boiling, horrible cauldron of hate and anguish because outwardly, they just thought that I had, they were, they were thinking that it was a good thing. They were thinking that I was better than I was before. Right. Because you were not so in, I don't want to put words in anybody in their eyes, manic, or as you said, getting the rage on your face or, right. or whatever it was. Like I'd get in trouble sometimes at work the way I, they'd say that I was mean to someone or mm-hmm. I spoke to them a certain way. And I, this blew my mind because to me, I was just explaining something to them. Right. But I guess the the volume of my voice and the resting murder face that I have. <laughs> Which I see right now. <laughs> um, would cause issue. but So you're not doing I'm that the, anymore. And everybody's like, well, look at Chris. He's oh, doing he's better. So, yeah, you seem a lot more pleasant. Oh, Chris, yeah, you you feel okay? Yeah, you seem to be a but lot better. But just constant self-flagellation. But in the, yeah, in my mind, it was just... just that did you try to explain that to anybody no because i was having trouble really describing anything i couldn't even really describe it to samantha all that well my wife Mm -hmm. um i was just suffering and i one time i came on a i watched the first episode of the mary tyler moore show great show great show and i found that i could when when i watched it i wasn't thinking about all the other horrible things in my life. Mm-hmm. So I obsessively watched it. Like everywhere I was, I I would watch it. I would get to work early and watch a couple episodes and then make it till lunchtime so I could watch a couple more episodes and then get home at night and watch hours worth. I went through all, I went every single episode. All seven seasons? Yeah, within a fairly short amount, just a few weeks time. Because like basketball, you could watch that. You could, I know you are a great lover of sitcoms. Yeah. And you're a great lover of the sitcom trope and you're wrongly a great lover of the laugh track, but right. you could get lost in the rhythm. Maybe. Right. Is a way to say it of that. And then say, Oh, see, they're doing, you could see how you were like breaking it down and right. say, this is how this works. And this right. is why it wasn't I like that, this character. Right. And it, yeah, it wasn't that the, the, the a plot of this episode was so captivating that it took me away. It was that I had watched so much television in my life and this was such a classic one and it was so well constructed and well put together. And I love these characters and, and so, you know, like, oh, he's going to do a bit. Yeah. Oh, here comes Ted. He's going to do something. Huge, huge shout out, by the way, to the Mary Tyler Moore show, because it's fucking great. Yeah. You should definitely great. watch it if you have it. So you're doing that. How long into being on the drug are you at this point where you're relying on classic sitcoms? <laughs> right. And sports. Um, I would say I got on the 30 milligrams before Christmas. And it was almost the end of February when I just wanted to give up on, I just wanted to not be feeling that way anymore. I couldn't, I didn't want to take that medicine anymore. Before Christmas of 2021. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So you were on it. I was, I was on the, the high, the, the higher, the 30 milligrams I was on for maybe three months, three and a half months. How long after you started feeling this way and having the obsessive thoughts and revisiting every single decision, like, why did I become friends with Kevin? Things like that. Right. That did you go back? Shut up, Brent. Did you go back to the doctor, your primary care provider and go, I, I this is terrible. This is doing X, Y, and Z to me. Right. I did do that. How, how long after you started feeling that way? Did you go talk to your doctor? It was say, a couple months. Well, I know you were on it. So I, the reason I ask that is I know you have to, wean off of these drugs right how long did you wean off of it i was taking 30 
mm-hmm. milligrams. Mm-hmm. And then I had to continue. I had to take half of that amount for some weeks and then a smaller amount still. So it was probably about six weeks altogether that until I was taking none. Yeah. And then with that kind of medicine, it's some more time needed to pass to get it out of to your completely not be in my system. Mm-hmm. But then they, some other things that I had read or whatever, not, not from my doctor or any other. I, I do have a friend that is a psychiatrist and I kind of just off the record, off the books, kind of just asked their advice and asked, well, what would you know you do or what can I say? And she's like, well, you're not my patient and blah, 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 all the caveats. Mm-hmm. But there was the idea that your brain will rewire itself. It will revert back to how it was before you started taking this. How terrified were you that that was not going to happen? Very. Uh, To to the point where it's almost a year now that I've not taken it, and I still feel like something is not ever going to be the same. Like, I am irrevocably changed. Do you mean that you still feel that cloudiness that you, you said? I don't feel what may have been... I don't know if it was just manic episodes that just were... Because with bipolar two, I guess if if I have it, I I you know I didn't ever go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or I don't know who is best to diagnose that kind of thing, but I don't think that it's just my primary care physician off of a drug reps sales sheet. What do you mean? Is that the? I think that's what that questionnaire was. Oh, that she originally diagnosed me like she diagnosed within like five seconds, like. So it's the sheet of paper that's got five questions written on it with the drug company's logo on it. And according to the answers to those five questions, instantly you have bipolar too. Did you should take this drug. While taking the drug, did you ever think I'm gonna I should see speak to somebody at the same time? I don't think so. No. That I that Or just, or if I did, curious. I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just was like, well, my doctor says this is what I should be taking. So I guess I'm going to take it. But then after some months of just just mental anguish, torture and suffering, I couldn't sleep. I could barely work. It was really affecting my marriage. Not in a, like she was going to leave me, but. She's worried about you. Very. Mm-hmm. And because when you stop talking, it's, and I'm not trying to be funny. Like that's not you. That's not you. Right. And people would want to call me like old friends would want to mm-hmm. call me and catch up. And I couldn't really hold conversation. You and I didn't even have, I mean, we would have calls, but they would be short and you sounded, um, I think the word I'll use is defeated. Yeah. Where I just didn't have much to offer the conversation. And I could tell that you were, knowing you as well as I do, that you were consumed with the fear that you were not doing what you once did. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, one of the things that I thought of myself was in any conversation, I can always find the joke or do a play on words with whatever somebody said or you know, the kind of like what you you hear with a lot of, you know, podcast groups, mm-hmm. There's some dudes sitting around a table and just talking about a subject, but then riffing on they do the, riff the on subject it. and riffing on mm-hmm. building off of what this guy said and making a joke. And then that guy says a joke that's based on what that was, that kind of thing. And you felt that that was gone. That or I, you were yeah, worried that was gone. That that was something that I was never going to be able to do again. I wasn't, I wasn't near the. My sense of humor, which I had always kind of leaned on and had had some validation about at various from various people at various mm-hmm. times, I felt like maybe it had been burned out of my brain by this it, medicine. It uh, it's a terrifying thought to think of a sense of humor going away. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, just think, look at me, and then think about me without a sense of humor, and you get Brent. <laughs> <laughs> but I yeah, I started listening to. Um, just sitcom like comedy channels on Sirius. There's like six different ones. Do you mean like stand up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, 
and then go through the Netflix stand-up specials and just I just started watching a lot of stand-up, just trying to even. Were you trying to sharpen your sense of humor again, or just see if I even recognized it? Like if I, if I even found what they were saying funny, mm-hmm. or if it was funny, and I didn't laugh or whatever, but didn't react to it. What does that say? Or that's a pretty well crafted joke. I wonder if I. That sounds like something I would have said. You know what he's doing now is something that I used to do. I think. Oh, that's you what still, I would do. Are you still doing this? No, not nearly as much. I mean, you remain to me um, one of my north stars. Uh, one of the my artistic heroes. I call you. You're one of my original reading heroes. You have introduced me to. So many things artistically, culturally in my life that have made my life exponentially better. And I, for one, uh, don't feel that any of that is gone. But I can understand the all-consuming fear that my, I'll just speak as myself, like my identity is now gone. Right. And that is fucking frightening. It totally is. So you're almost a year off it. Right. Um, and you feel you are back to normal? I don't know. I still have the fear that I don't, I will never be ex- exactly who I was before I went down this medicine journey for my mental health. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I will ever really feel. And maybe that's not true. Maybe something's going to happen like in the, in the near future or in the, or in the far future. I don't know. But currently today, as we sit here, I still feel like Superman that went into the chamber. Damn it. And came out with no powers. I was really hoping we could get out without the Superman reference, but all right. No, there will be a Superman reference. Yeah, there always fucking will be. Raylar or well, no. I, I, well, Orson hasn't shown up yet, so. That's true. Well, now he has. Right, might bust out some Orson quotes. Uh, Well, you know, and again, I want to reiterate: just because this didn't work for you does not mean it's not a valuable medication that works for people. Everybody's totally different, and what works for one person might not work for the other. Vice versa, yeah. But how these are pills that are on the market for a reason? I have to imagine. It just didn't help me. You right? One way or another, I've had an experience similar to this. Although I don't know if it was as, as extreme as this, one way or another, I think a lot of people who do struggle with mental health are prescribed medications that maybe aren't the best for them, and they feel like they're doing something wrong or that they fucked up or they're scared to death about it. But they they're like, but they're these are the drugs. This is what's supposed to be happening. And so I appreciate that you came on uh, today and were able to be so forthright about that and say I was scared to death of these things right and uh, kudos to you for saying you know what i'm going to make the decision my life has become something that i was not expecting something i don't recognize i'm going to make the decision to try to move on from this right and 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 i think that's not an easy thing to do either right well i appreciate that and uh and i just appreciate you having me on and to be able to talk about it i think the more i have kind of talked about it and trying to articulate outwardly mm-hmm. what's been going on inwardly has been a big benefit. Well, that's good. And and I'm glad that, that this was a benefit. And I look forward to a couple of years from now when some other horrible shit has happened. We can have <laughs> you back on and we can all process it. Right. Uh, but seriously, is there anything else that you wanted to impart or say before we kind of wrap up? Um, not really. I, I just think that, um, mental health is a very important issue. And I think that a lot of times companies or people's employers, they give the lip service to it or they all send out emails checking in on your well being, <laughs> or <laughs> check your vitals. Um, checking in on your well-being right. or they'll say that there's some some resources available mm-hmm. but then when you go to avail yourself of these resources mm-hmm. they don't seem to be or they'll say that they're very concerned but then when you 
tell them, well, I have this and I need some accommodations because of this. They suddenly don't seem to be as interested. But um, yeah, mm-hmm. but um, so if it's almost as if we say we're having a conversation about mental health, but we're not really having a conversation about it. Well, at least at, in the workplace, you're right in the workplace. Well, um, that gives me an idea. People want to just kind of sweep it under the rug and be like, they don't want to have to deal with it. They're like, how are you doing? Well, and then you start to say, and then, then oh, okay, well, um, got a got a call. I got to get on. Which uh, yeah, and it's I think it, it's finish what you're saying. I don't mean just to that. You. I think if if folks are identifying or saying yes, I hear you to anything that I've said, and they find themselves having difficulty even getting through the workday and doing their work to really lean on um, friends and people that you trust and are close to because no matter how much some some outward group like your boss or your company or whatever it's the it's the people closest to you that are actually going to be the ones to get get you over the hump and get you past it and get you talking again or get you out of your your head yeah and um i think too the more we have people like you come on tell your story that will also lead to you're in the workplace and you say actually this is going on as people hear these stories more and more they're going to be more comfortable listening to them and it's not at least in my experience, it's it's rarely that that person doesn't care. It's that they're like, ah. Uh. Or, yeah, even be able to identify it. If somebody that you're working with is, you've known them always to be a certain way, and then suddenly they're acting a very different way, mm-hmm. that might not be a good thing. That might not be something that they're happy about. Or it may outwardly appear one way, but inside that person's mind, a very different thing is happening. Yeah. So. Yeah. And don't. I- don't be afraid to reach out and say, I, I noticed that uh, you don't, you know, you're not going out with us as much on happy hours or you're not doing this or you're, or you are doing this. Is everything all right? Yeah. I, I can remember the smallest of kindnesses from people like 30 years ago. Yeah. So even if you reach out to somebody and say, are you doing okay? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it, it's immeasurable for some people to hear that. And um, something I like to always close the show with is, one, thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing. Appreciate Seriously, it. thank you. And two, um, just a reminder that I like to throw in at the end that there's always room for kindness and grace, no matter the situation. And uh, I think it's worth remembering that for yourself as well. I, I forget it every fucking day that I could be a little nicer to myself or maybe allow myself a little more grace, not as you said earlier, total <laughs> failure. <laughs> so uh, just, and, you know, hearing stories like yours, I know that there are people out there who are listening who have who have struggled with the same thing, and I hope it, it helps you feel less alone because I think the less alone we all feel, the more we'll be willing to open up. Mm-hmm. So thank you again for that. Thank you. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, we will see you next time on Sad Times. You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.